Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories and life stories of some of my favourite people. This week's guest is chef and restaurateur JP McMahon. He has he's the owner of three restaurants, Cava Bodega, Eat Gastro Pub and Anya, all based around Galway in, in the west coast of Ireland. And he is self-taught, uh, also runs a cookery school and the amazing food festival Food on the Edge, which really uh, is all about promoting Irish food uh, and slow food, I guess, in, in the sense that it's all about food of the area and people who are really making a difference in food. And I, I won't ramble on for too long because, my goodness, this was a long conversation. <laughs> I had to cut some bits out but I really didn't want to because it was so interesting and he is such a passionate, authentic speaker about food and really incredibly unpretentious and uh, I don't, I say that because he has a Michelin star and yet you wouldn't know it. He is just himself and that's exactly what he does in his food as well and it's what I'm always looking for in contact with people but also in the food that I eat that sense of the food as it really is not over fussed with just given love and yeah he does that absolutely so just get ready to hear a beautiful voice talking about some really lovely things I was stalking you yesterday oh, that's okay. and uh, <laughs> in preparation and I saw that because I, I knew you'd started running um, but that you've been in the sea uh, there was videos of you jumping off the I um, know I, I, I was um, I don't know how you describe it yeah I had my virgin jump off the top <laughs> yes well I mean that's yeah I'm not up to that yet I don't really jump in I tend to just get in <laughs> yeah, that's what I, that's what I've always done and um my brother jumps in like every single day. He's a like um, an adrenaline junkie. Like yeah. he's he. That, it's not even high enough for him. You know, it's like <laughs> okay. uh, uh, he's like, oh god, it's like I've moved beyond that so long ago. And he's I was like, like taking a chair up to the top. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd always go up and look down and go, I'm not doing that. I just can't do that. Oh and my so god. the tide was at its height. We had like a full um, like a full moon tide, uh, spring yeah. tide. And so uh, I said, I looked at it and I said, you know what, it's now or never. And I just went up and did it. So oh. it's, it's still, it's, I don't think I could still just pop up and jump off it like uh, I not notice. Like I haven't, yeah. got to, I haven't got to that stage yet, but um, <laughs> I don't get into the sea half enough. But that's one good thing about uh, COVID, you see your surroundings a little bit more. For sure. Yeah. And what does it feel like when you jump off? It's like, it's weird because um, when you, uh, let me see. How do you describe it? Like, because when you yeah, you think that you're going to go, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Like, and but when you go off, like it's you, you can do nothing. It's like, <laughs> you have no control. So, and I always think I'm just going to run and just jump. And he was like, just keep looking out, keep looking straight out. But your natural tendency is to look down. Yeah. And so I, I run and then I look down. And so it actually, it actually, it, it it he was like, you're not jumping properly. You're supposed to just jump straight out. Yeah. And so I still haven't got that. But yeah, it's weird. It is like um, 
I suppose it's good psychologically because you kind of lose control momentarily yeah. and you have you have to um, like accept the fact that, yeah, you're going to hit the water and you're going to resurface. And because all those things about like, what if it's not deep enough? And what if I go too far? And what if I don't come up? And like yeah. all these all these kind of thoughts, because I suppose we're programmed not to jump off things because it's not good. <laughs> it's a bit dangerous yeah Yeah. and so all so you have to um and I think as an adult it's more difficult because you have much more ingrained um habits because my daughter's nine and she she's jumped off the middle but she just like I only jumped off the middle last year she's like oh yeah jump and she's like oh great like she hasn't built up this kind of fear of like like am I going to come up am I going to float am I going to hit someone am I going to do whatever yeah 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 it's uh, that you feel invincible as a child don't you Whereas, yeah that's what yeah, I mean it, it, you you gather all these anxieties as a as an adult and they weigh you down and I think that's why the jumping off is such a relief isn't it it's like oh my god I did something yeah. that is objectively scary and I'm still here and and it is it is like it's almost like a little zen moment you know yeah. it's like a little oh my god I did that and all the things that I'd built up were actually irrelevant yeah. you know so it's a bit like I suppose t- it's like taking a leap of faith I suppose like yeah. when you when you fear about if you have a fear about traveling or you fear about x y and z I suppose once you go through it then you go oh yeah god that was she wasn't that bad I'm uh, still alive <laughs> but but the, the difficulty is going through it it's yeah like, exactly it, yeah it's not and I certainly wouldn't say oh yeah done that now tick the box because it's still I went up again and I did it subsequently. I thought, actually, I've done it once now, but it's still, maybe I just have to, yeah, do it a lot. But the funny thing is, it's like there's just kids running past you constantly going, are you going? Are you going? And I go, no, no, I'm just looking. And they're just like, there's just, I, I, and they go, no, no, I'm just, just having a look. <laughs> just up here for the view. Yeah. And they're like, out of the way, old man. <laughs> Yeah, oh, well, I had the same thing because I used to be afraid of the sea and ah. then I started sea swimming. And I mean, I mean, afraid of the sea in the way that I would never get out of my depth. And so oh, the yeah. idea of jumping off a tower into deep waters to like, ah! <laughs> but but I just started, I just started sea swimming last summer and just went a little bit further out of my depth each time. And now I swim, you know, swim a kilometre, no problem. Oh, and, and I swam through the winter, but it was that same thing of, of it made me feel so brave inside because I've been so afraid of it. And then, you know, it's like every time you do it, you're like, I'm still here. Nothing yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. And I'd still, I don't know, I don't know what, maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's a thing from maybe British and Irish people. I don't know that because I still, I would still be wary out of my depth. You know, it's still like okay. I, can, I can swim in the sea and I'm a strong swimmer, and but I'd still always be cautious. Whereas okay. my, my friend is Australian. And I don't know if they just grow up with there's the sea, get into it. And, mm. and he would literally swim like a kilometer out and wow. then straight back in. And I go, what about that parallel thing swimming along yeah. the shore? And he's yeah. like, ah, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just just swim straight out. And he's like, ah, you might get into difficulty. You'll be grand. <laughs> I was like, whoa. No uh, way. I mean, because that's just not true, though, is it? Objectively, no, no, if you tr- swim yeah. out a kilometre, it's not the depth of the sea. It's just that it's going to take you a kilometre to get back. Whereas if you're swimming parallel to the sea, you can just swim to the shore and run. <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. Or whatever. Or float on your back till someone comes from the shore. No, yeah. you know, but the, it's the Coast Guard that has to get you if you're a kilometre out. I isn't know. It? And he's just crazy. Yeah. Just, but just like, literally and it was it seemed like it was in his uh, like DNA just to do this and it was just like and I think it was just the difference between growing up 
within a culture of, of swimming. And it's not that we didn't swim, but I just, I think that it's even swimming in the sea, I think has actually probably caught on more in Ireland. I think there's more people because of COVID. I mean, yeah. Because you'd always have like dippers and you'd always have people going now. But I think the fact that we couldn't travel, like we couldn't go 2K and then we couldn't go 5K. And mm. so I, I think that I think a lot more people went into the sea and started and started uh, swimming because it seems far busier than it was in the, oh, yeah. in the past. And it is like, I'm sure where you are as well, like the, even even when the weather gets really good, the, the sea is still cold. Like it's still it doesn't yeah. get like tropical, you know. No, <laughs> your sea is definitely still a bit colder than yeah, ours. The, I think the Atlantic is is all like it might go up a degree or two. Yeah, but yeah. it's still um, that's why you can swim during the winter because it's mm. once you get used to it, it's like summer swimming and winter swimming is pretty much the same. <laughs> exactly, you're like what? There's no. Well, actually, it does we were swimming in a lake in the in the winter sometimes, oh, cool. and that got insanely cold. I mean, down to three degrees. Uh, oh, wow. There was never ice on the top, but still, and that was a real. That was another kind of challenge of oh, you know, what am I going to do about this if I get in and I can't breathe? And and again, yeah, yeah. got in, it's fine. It's just a bit colder, you know. I imagine your Australian friend was just really delighted there weren't sharks, and he was oh, like, "Yeah, he's like, he's a swim anywhere." <laughs> I, but he actually said to me once, and like it's it's it scared the life of me because I actually got caught in um in a riptide once in Spain, wow. and and I, and I was literally only. I might have been like a couple of meters from shore and I actually couldn't even stand. And yet I could, I could stand. I just couldn't stand because the, the wave had me yeah. and, I, and, I, and I was swimming and swimming and swimming and I wasn't getting any closer oh. to the sea. And then I tried to stand up and then a wave hit me. Anyway, I got out and of course my, my, um, and, and it's like, maybe it's the, the Irish uh, kind of with their bleak sense of humor. I said to my wife, I nearly drowned. And she said, you're always trying to do things like that. <laughs> <laughs> like God, what do you what do you need attention or what <laughs> what do you expect like and I was you like, will go in the sea <laughs> yeah but but matt once said he was swimming in Colombia and his his partner was on the beach with headphones on and she was the only person on the beach oh. and he and he did his i'll swim straight out and then on the way back in the tide reversed <gasps> and he said he was just swimming and swimming and swimming and he couldn't move he wasn't moving and he and then he said i'll just relax <laughs> and he said yeah just chill out here for a while oh my and god. and then uh, he swam around and he said yeah yeah that was, wasn't too bad and I was like oh my god that's, that's an absolute uh, so you'd be panicking it's a panic isn't it that yeah and he said ah, I might just chill out just lie well, down the sea and I was like uh, okay sounds like he should do life coaching <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> it might be fairly brutal because he has it like you know what I mean it's just like get over yourself and get into the sea like, yeah you know? but I mean that, that's a school of thought isn't it I guess yeah, get over I, yourself and get into the sea we'll get him some t-shirts printed with that yeah, on and us, uh, us, he's good us, to go Australian life coaching just like yeah what's wrong with you just stop 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 feeling so much just yeah, go and do exactly, it exactly yeah have a beer get on with it yeah, yeah. Oh, we've just very, been very reductive about Australians now great oh, we we'll have know, to tick yeah. a few people off <laughs> yeah absolutely disclaimer I didn't grow up in the most foodie of families, you know. I mean, food was always there because there was so I was uh, there was six children and two adults, so there was eight people in the house, okay. and my mom was like uh, had to cook every single day for everyone. Um, and then I had I had two. I grew up in Dublin, so I had two I had two grandmothers, um, and and one was um, 
One was like, how do I describe this? Uh, one was kind of upwardly mobile. He lived in a kind of posh part of Dublin. And um, what was that show with Hyacinth Bouquet in it? I can't even remember. Oh, that yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, God. I, I can't, I, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Anyway, a little bit like that. It's kind of like the table would be set for breakfast the, the previous night. Wow. You know, and uh, and the cutlery and uh, the the china and all these plates and cups and and the other granny was an absolute diehard working class like politician who like um, lived in a council house in Bray, which is south of Dublin by the sea. And um, yeah, and, and food was just utilitarian. It was just like like for me that the memories there would be like tasting the aluminium out of the, from the beans because the beans would have been cooked so much in the aluminium pot oh my God. or the or the or the sausages were so burned because she was afraid of food poisoning and oh, I was like, really yeah yeah so it's always like just cook the sausages properly and yes. you're going like wow they have like a leather uh, leather outside to them uh those two kind of worlds one of of of, of weirdly i'd say almost like and it's I, like i grew up catholic and like in Ireland, there's this like Catholic Protestant dynamic and, and it affects food as well, because generally speaking, not always, but like the Protestants were a part of that kind of landed aristocracy who had the land, had the food, had the culture. And that kind of came down through until independence when the, I, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and I think that's why some people say, oh, we've no food culture and We've, uh, like because of like colonization or, or, or the mm. famine or those things. But I think what for one grandmother, it was certainly that I'd almost imagined that she was like an Anglo-Irish Protestant. It's kind of like she wanted to control every aspect of the day through food by setting the table. Wow. And, you were, and you weren't allowed into the, the, the dining room when it wasn't time to eat. You know, whereas in, in Bray, there wasn't even a dining room. There was like a kitchen with a, uh, with a table, a tiny table and, and, a, and, a, and a little sitting room. And mm. I remember and my granny would actually wash us in a bucket in the, in, in the kitchen. You'll think this is 100 years ago, but it absolutely wasn't. So the, the, those kind of uh, my two granny. And then at home, I always found, particularly probably growing up in the 80s, just, and this is just before, I suppose, supermarkets, uh, the supermarket explosion and kind of much more variety. Like we had a very stable kind of thing where we'd have fish on Friday and that kind of, but and I grew up actually hating fish because all we seemed to ever got was whiting, bony whiting, um, floured. And I always think, oh my God, this is, this is not nice. Um, and um, yeah. And then, it, then it's, it's strange because then it kind of goes into a period of, I think supermarkets and processed foods and brands. And then you have like, Finders crispy pancakes and fish fingers and bird's eye and all these things and and we thought they were like we thought we were like absolutely modern eating these things we we're like this is like the most innovative thing you could eat <laughs> yes and, and the crispy pancakes I think yeah. a lot of people have that don't they they're like my husband was talking about it the other day because we I was living in a commune at that time so I we didn't have the crispy pancakes yeah, or anything yeah. like that and uh, but he said that he would just beg his mother for them and they were very working class. They didn't have all this kind of everything was cooked from scratch. And he was begging, begging and the crispy pancakes arrived and they were just a massive disappointment because they were horrible. You know, they yeah. were these kind of yeah, over salty nothings. Uh, but the mystique of them still 
somehow and, and, and I even still see chefs now recreating crispy pancakes like from scratch in their restaurant to, to, to try and get back to this place that didn't exist yes. you know like in the sense of like whatever it was the steak and kidney or before that I know I think we always had a day where we'd have stew on one day and then we'd have shepherd's pie and then I think it was always kind of viewed as all at that time processed food was viewed as a treat do you know what I mean it's like we're gonna we're not gonna cook today it's a treat whereas now I think people like think you're like a, like a hundred years old going that was a treat like you're yeah. like going like wow like I feel sorry for you <laughs> like, <laughs> yes exactly like, how bleak that- yeah, if that was your treat, God, you were so lucky. One of the formative moments in um, in kind of th- in thinking about food for me was, and I don't know if it was because of Ireland becoming a bit more wealthy as a country or Italian 90 or, I mean, qualifying for the World Cup and all this, but like Italian, when Italian food came to Ireland, mm-hmm. and now I think actually when I, I, I like, with my historical hat on I say returned but we always felt that this was the first time ever pasta had been in Ireland but yeah I just remember falling in love with with food, Italian food and pasta and uh, and even and even like the, I remember really bad pizzas from from the supermarkets that you make yourself like mm. really horrible bases like just spun and um, but still thinking oh my god this is the best thing ever like it's not stew or shepherd's pie or like or 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 bony whiting with with loads of flour and bones it was the newness of it rather than the quality of it yeah definitely but but i think that on the i think my father started cooking lasagna and um and i remember that being uh, like amazing because Mm. uh just thinking oh god this is this is great and maybe it was because it was just comforting you know and and also he was he was he my father's he's a scientist he's not wasn't much of a cook in the sense of like he wouldn't be cooking every day, but he made a few dishes like uh, lasagna and he would make spaghetti bolognese. Would make, my mom always seemed to do the stews and the pies and all those sort of things. Mm. Um, and uh, I just remember being really attracted to that. I mean, still to this day, my, my favorite comfort food is spaghetti bolognese. Like when, mm. it, and it's my, and it's my nine-year-old, I've nine or 12 year old, but it's my nine-year-old's favorite dish as well. And I suppose I love cooking it because not only is it great to cook with them and it has loads of co- components, but at the same time, for me, um, one of the first times I had it was in a restaurant in Tipperary, or oh, I think about 1987, hmm. possibly. Um, uh, it was called Shay's, Shay's Hands, which is a weird place to get together, but <laughs> spaghetti bolognese. Shay's Hands, I love yeah. that. That's like French and German. <laughs> yeah. And yet now you're eating Italian food. <laughs> yeah, and your, man, and your man seemingly, I actually researched it a small bit. He was German and he was living in, in Tipperary and it was actually Michelin recommended and wow. all this. And I was like, wow. I, at the time we were just on holidays and um, there was six of us. And of course, everyone was having burgers and chips. And for some, whatever reason, uh, so what age, uh, 87, I would have been nine. Um, I said, I'm going to have the spaghetti bolognese. And my mom was like, you're not, you're not going to eat that. <laughs> She's like, you're not going to eat that. Um, it's, uh, and I was like, oh, I will, I will, I will. And uh, so I got that. And I, and I remember it came with a big, big lump of parsley on top, just one sprig of parsley. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think that I, when I try and think about like why food is important to me and why I love food. And I still kind of see that moment. There are probably other ones, but it's the one I remember the, the most where I had a, a little epiphany and like I suppose food marked me as different because everyone else was having burgers and there was mm-hmm. a kind of uh, you could explore true food you know you could uh, you could use food to explore other cultures and to be different yeah and I think and I think that's what 
probably got me on the the food buzz in in terms of using food to to assert I suppose some aspect of my identity or something like that yeah 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 and the experience of eating that bolognese what how how did it feel you were being different everyone was having the burgers yeah and I felt like kind of I suppose I felt like um like yeah I did feel I did feel good you know I felt like kind of like oh wow this is like different food and it's like I'm enjoying it. And someone said I wasn't going to, and it's not from my past or like, as I said, my grandparents, I never, I don't even think I ever saw rice other than in category. Yeah. That was like, I mean, yeah. rice was like, rice was like a foreign food, even though yeah. they had potatoes every day, which is like just as foreign as rice. Um, yeah, well, but, a bit further back, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but actually, do you know what? I bet you, and I, I could be wrong. I bet you rice has been in Ireland longer than potatoes. Really? Well, I, I bet you, yeah, because of the British Empire and colonization and India. And I could be wrong, but like if rice comes to Europe, like with in whatever, probably pre after the Renaissance, like I'd imagine, you know, I, I could mm-hmm. be wrong. But like, because all I know when I was writing the book, I was surprised spices have been in Ireland a thousand years. But not yeah. used. <laughs> no, no, but no, no, but yeah, very much used, but just by a different class, the Anglo Normans. You know, and um, and who became the Irish and who ended up fighting against the British. So it's kind mm. of like that's why that you have that weird what's Irish and what's not Irish. And I suppose you have it in England as well. Like what's British and what's not British and who is like like who gets to control what is what they think, who, what their food identity is in terms of the, the national, the kind of national foods. Well, the most popular food is curry, isn't it? Yeah. In England, you and, know, so it's it's. It, it, totally not what you would associate with British food but that's what British people want to eat and I mean I always think of Irish food certainly from that time as being comforting and bland and that's why I say not apart from maybe uh, you know barn brack or something that would have a lot of spices in because it was like a fruitcake but otherwise I don't remember ever eating anything spicy or or even particularly like full of herbs or anything like that it's yeah, like yeah. it was just the meat and the veg and the and the fish everyone has their own little micro history you know yeah. what i mean and what happens is sometimes that lines up with the official history and then sometimes it doesn't in the sense that i think i had quite a typical irish childhood of the 1980s and as you described there like not a whole not a whole lot of herbs not a whole lot of seasoning um, and yet I've talked to people who grew up at the same time as me and they were like, oh, no, no, we were eating wild game. And uh, no. and yeah. And I was like, God, that didn't come to me until I was nearly 20. Yeah. You know, and and so I think it's that uh, you have to be careful and cautious when you say this is this is what I ate. Therefore, that was that was the that was that's culturally representative, because yeah. I think I think you have to try and take a broad view as possible and say, well, maybe. <sighs> Maybe someone who um, who had game because their father was a hunter is just as valid a, a food history, even though it's it's not as uh, major. But on, on mm. the subject of curry, which is I found a curry recipe uh, from actually wasn't even the earliest one. This one was from 1850 in Mayo. Mm-hmm. OK, and it was mm. lobster curry. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, it, and I said to someone, "What if I had to ask you what Irish food was in 1850, they would have went <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> and I was like, well, this chap in Mayo, he was probably had a bit of money. The, the, I found it in the Madden papers, was leaving lobster curry. And, uh, and, and seemingly curry, because of India, was a sign of prestige. Because yes. you, had, you, could, you could demonstrate, look, I, I'm able, I have spices, you know. Mm. And, 
and if and you, you see it there but i think i think earlier i found a potato curry recipe which is which is funny which is <laughs> seemingly soldiers returning from fighting in india would get would bring spices back because so, mm. we never had curry like a curry grown up at a chinese like that was the epitome of like foreign extravagance it was like are we going to have a chinese are we yeah. going to have a curry and yeah. it was probably the worst chinese in curry in the whole world ever and like and uh, but i remember my mom <laughs> eating thinking this is the best thing ever you know <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't bland great no yeah. herb whatever <laughs> When I go over, she's like, we're cooking pork chops. And I was like, oh, God. Uh, and it's not that I don't like pork chops. It's just that I'd probably like to cook them myself. I know my aunt doesn't use salt at all in cooking. And I was like, yes. wow. And it's not like for health reasons. It's not for whatever reason. It's like, I don't think I need it. Oh, right. OK, well, listen, I won't have an argument with you. Um, and <laughs> I, I had some food there and I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. I didn't want to say it's been overseas. <laughs> it's, um, it's bland, yeah. yeah. But it's that like, thing of it's like it's adequate. It's my yeah. mother always says food is fuel. And I think, wow, gosh, that seems because obviously for you and I, food is so much more than fuel. But to view food as something that is just literally keeping me alive. Why would you salt it? 100 percent. Like food was absolutely like pure fuel and utilitarian. It was like it was like shut up and eat your dinner. And when you're finished, leave the table. There was yeah. no like. Why don't you sit down and relax and have a chat and I, like have a glass of wine and sit and, and eat and talk. And it's just like, eat, move, gone. Yeah. And, and, and I remember my mom always giving out to my father going, you're eating too fast, you're eating too fast. Because for him, it was like, I'm a scientist. I don't need to spend time eating. I need to spend time thinking about science things. Why would you need anything other than it just needs to be grand? so much mm, like, it, mm. like it's it's almost like a, a sociological experiment like you 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 can define their whole surroundings literally by just what they had on a plate well I was going to say often I find that people who are real foodies when they're older it's because they've come from a, uh, an upbringing which wasn't and with people who are either like you were saying food, you know the food was just put down and you eat it and on you go or uh, my mother had anorexia and she also came from that just eat the food and, you know and so there was a kind of whole feeling of like barrenness that yeah. I reacted against to uh, to be like no food is so joyful oh my god it's such a why are you denying yourself this because it's one of the sensual pleasures and and yet a lot of people who didn't grow up with that then find it later and it becomes almost religious <laughs> Yeah, and, and it, I think you're right when you say, like, there, there was certainly a reaction against that, you know, where, like, I, like, it was certainly a kind of, like, the rebellious teenager in me was like, like, what can I take that my parents don't do? And, mm. like, of course, one of them was, was, was music, and because, not that they weren't musical, but it was different music, but then another was food. <laughs> So I did home economics and I think I was one of three boys uh, <laughs> doing. And the, the, the tragedy is that like I teach now and I, I talk to students and it's still it's still there's still a stigma against for some weird reason against boys doing home economics. I was saying to the class, oh, God, it must be so different now because we're so like, I mean, 
have moved beyond gender stereotypes and they were like and the girls were like no there's two boys in the class and the irony that so many of the top chefs are male i mean there's a dearth of women isn't there at the top i think it's claire yeah. smith the, the one michelin star yes. you know starred female chef what is that why is it that that girls are doing home economics but not doing the kind of all singing all dancing michelin chefing? Yeah, and, and there are more there are more women in the food industry in the world like globally than there are men mm. you know there are more like women are in more aspects in terms of the production like whether it's cheese making or whether it's like like so many different things and so it, it's it's a it is strange why that then what happens at the top why is that the, the case you know and I, it is a bit depressing when you when you when you go into a home economics class, and even I did, I did a thing with a youth, a youth reach group uh, recently about uh, early school leavers, and most of them, most in the cooking section, there was mostly girls. There was a couple of shy guys, mm. um, and then um, and then there was one guy who actually came up and talked to me who just loved cooking, and he looked, he was like probably the same as me when I was fifteen or sixteen. That one person who was like, I just like cooking, and my friend slagged me. You know, because that was the thing when I was in home economics is like, why are you doing a girl's subject? Are you doing it because it's easy or, but I suppose for me, I just loved, I, I, it was the practicality of it because I did art as well, but I just loved classes where you went in and did something mm. and, uh, and it was like you drew or you, or you went in and cooked as opposed to we're going to do another class to sit down. And, and it's not that I, I love reading and, and books and all that, but it was just a, a little bit of a difference, you know? Mm. And I still I still think about when I, when people ask me, I mean, why I why I cook and I still think that home economics left a really great impression on me, even as as being able to manage a space domestically. And I know that's a that's an I think still that's people see that as a negative word, like when you can manage your house, you know, mm. but but I think still people see it as kind of like it's not a I don't know, like for me, like people say, but your house is very clean, you know, and you're going like, why wouldn't it be clean? Like. Like, yeah. it's like, and like, and then I have friends who it's just like, I go to their house and it's like chaotic. And it's like, God, you wouldn't just like manage your house a little better. But I don't say this, like, I don't say this to them. I go like, but I, I don't, I think that kind of like minding your domestic space and that mm. minding your, your, I think that was, that slightly was instilled in home economics. You do all that, you, you learn how to, to sew and then you learn how to like, yeah, put, put a daily chart together of what people are going to eat, all these things. And okay. I think that's kind of left a little bit of a, a legacy in um uh in me because even even my my wife would not be as um orientated towards the domestic space but maybe that's a kind of like yeah it's a kind of reaction going i'm i'm, I'm more than this space and yeah i think there's always mm. this there's always this tension in in the domestic space because of the history of it and because as i said my mom six kids i mean that's my mom was a was a housewife and she couldn't be anything else and she said oh i was happy and I, I mean, they look back at that time and they say to me now, oh, it was, it was very simple and you had clear, defined roles. And I, and I know that, of course, they feel that, but I think it's because that there was no other choice. You know, yeah. I mean, it was and of course it felt simpler. But I think I remember at the time it still it was very hard, you know, yes, because hard work. Yeah. And my father would work and leave and go out and my mom would have like the, the dinner and the lunches and all of the clothes for six kids. And that is like. Like even with two kids, for me, it's like a full time mm. job, mm. you know, and it's and I could I just couldn't imagine having six kids and having to cook for them. Don't you think it's it's also really good when people look back at things that were hard and they see them as 
good and simple. It's like the uh, often rose tinted glasses are presented as something that's almost like you're in self denial, but actually rose tinting the past can be very positive for the present because you look back and you think, oh, I don't regret that. I look back and I see only what was positive. And that's not to say that running your house in a different way or living in a different time is negative, but it's almost like they absorb the hard bits. Mm. And what they're left with is remembering, oh, we had this family and it worked. And yeah, there's something nice about that. Yeah. And I, I, and I think I even find that myself because I remember like growing up in the 80s and it was it was hard. Like my, my father, like. Uh, he lost his job I mean he, he suffers from chronic depression and mm. like he would be at home a lot and yet at the same time when I think about it there is this rose tinted lens of god that was kind of really nice and there was like six of us and mm. yeah it's um and and I don't even even though I didn't grow up a foodie and I didn't I mean food is absolutely not a a privileged a privileged thing I, I don't feel I didn't have a good food upbringing. You know, I don't feel like, oh, I didn't have all of the, the great foods that I know now and the different oils and the di- whatever, the diversity of food. I still feel like, oh, yeah, I never felt lacking, you know. Mm. And mm. yet probably if I wrote it all down, I'd see, oh, my God, that was a bit of lack there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in my mind, I feel, yeah, that, it, that, it, that I, I wasn't missing anything. Yeah. And also the experiences like, I, I mean, I had the same in my childhood. I mean, there even was an actual lack of food at times. <laughs> We'd yeah. go to the kitchen and there was no food there. And and yet when I look back, I don't think, oh, gosh, the privations. I think, well, a lot of those memories have informed what I do now. And that it, it's like the, the kind of contrast with what you experienced then and, and, and the potential of what you see now. I mean, that, that it sounds like the thing that turned you on to food partially was newness and the feeling of discovery. And it's almost like that launching off the, the high platform into the sea, isn't it? It's like, wow, there's all this stuff out there and I don't know it. And that could potentially be scary. But for you, it was like, actually, this feels like potential that is I want to go towards. I think if I had grown up with a solid food education, whatever that might be, or I grew up pampered by food, I think I would be a different, I probably, I mightn't even be in food, you know, yeah. I, I, I would have been something else. And I, so I think that like it, to some degree, everything that happened along the way in, ended up informing who mm. was. And that, I think that's why I, I still really appreciate food. And I still, I think I understand food. Uh, both sides of it you know I mean sometimes when I when I speak to other like other Michelin star chefs or other like it's it's a complete it's a complete contrast you know and like in the sense of their food background or their food education or because like I, I'm, I'm self-taught as, as a as, as a chef and uh, I, I still retain some type of food modesty you know in the mm. sense of like of having to appreciate just I don't know, some sausages or something, you know, I never feel because people go, God, you must have the, the, the biggest kitchen at home and you must have your kids must eat everything. And it's like the absolute opposite. <laughs> like, 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 I mean, I just have a very basic kitchen at home and like the, the, the kids are very basic eaters and like and they go, God, it's great to hear the reality of your experience. And I'm going, like, why do people think because like I'm a restaurateur and a chef that the minute I go home that my kids are going to be eating lobsters and oysters? 
you know it's like or like i mean they eat pasta and cheese and sometimes they want the processed cheese because they hate the cheese i bring home and they go i'm not eating that cheese and i i think that's the reality of experience and i think people need to know that i need to know that that both of these things exist in the world and that of course i can uh talk to them and educate them as much as i want but the last thing i want to do is ram food down their throats in a way that it wasn't done to me because i want them to love it Mm. And, I, and I want them to find food as well. And so when they start eating different cheeses and say, oh, my God, this cheese is like really smoky. This cheese is really different. Or, or when they start when the 12 year old eats a little bit of seafood now and eats mussels and that. And it's a it's a gradual thing as opposed mm. to like some some kids are just like my my brother's uh, child is only like four and he's like eating bowls and bowls of mussels. And I'm going like, okay. why don't I have one of those children? Um, and, <laughs> because and, we come into the world almost fully formed don't we and the the worst thing is to force someone because nobody ever loved something through being forced towards it yeah abs- absolutely and so I'm like I, I I think I'm just careful about I want them to have like a, a normal food experience mm. in the sense of that uh, with their friends and and of course I mean it's not normal because I bake with them at home or I cook with them home or they're in the restaurant and and they take that completely for granted they're like oh my god we're going to the restaurant again and like literally like we never went to restaurants ever Mm. except when we were on holidays or it was a communion or a confirmation or I mean the height of our our restaurant culture was going to McDonald's in the 1980s and that was (laughs) once or twice a year as a treat yeah you know and uh, I was like, this is a special thing and you're going to have it once or twice a year. I don't want them to grow up thinking like that. All the stuff that we do in, in say in near is normal. I want them mm. to understand that it's just a different type of food or uh, and there are many, many different types of food. But essentially, you've got to find food and enjoy it. And, and I also want them to know where where food comes from and how it's produced and all that. But at the same time, I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to be overbearing, you know, and mm. and uh mm. I think it's 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 important because anyway, they're, they're, children are great for grounding it. They'll just tell me to shut up and they'll just say whatever. They'd be like, would you just stop talking about the food and eat? Like, it's just like, <laughs> I, I, like they're great. You'll never you'll never have uh, too big an ego when you have when you have two children, particularly the two girls. I'd, like oh, even yesterday, Heather was saying to me, someone noticed me on the street, and she was like, "It's like being so sarcastic." Oh my god, you're so famous! And she, and she, I was like, I didn't say I was. And she's like, No, I know, but I know you're thinking like, "Oh, I'm so famous." And she's like, "I'm like Gordon Ramsay," and I was like, "I am not like that." And she's like, "Well, you're not like Gordon Ramsay. He is famous." is the thing isn't it not yeah. the being famous being famous is a, a nothing really it's, it's like an ancillary thing that that just happens and yeah. then it's just like look it's there you know I think I remember I remember I remember David Bowie uh, a, a quote and he was saying like like he loved doing what he was doing and, and it made him famous but the object wasn't to become famous the object mm. was to to love doing what he was doing and if fame came along with that okay grand you just have to take it but it was it was that like I just do what I do Mm. and whatever like whatever let the let the pieces fall where they may you know Mm. and Mm. and that's the way for me the way I think about it and it's uh it's because because I I think all of that could just all all of that could just disappear you know tomorrow 
but actually the thing that's joyful is seeing someone eat your food and be delighted by it or like you were saying with your kids if your kids were suddenly eating different cheeses and and that would be the thing that'd be like oh this is what I wanted and and I see it now and that's what's delightful right that the the kind of sense of yourself out in the world as a person is a is a construct whereas Mm. the actual experience of bringing joy through cooking something delicious for someone is and it doesn't have to be fancy food it could be cooking something very simple at home people enjoying it that that warmth that comes from that is kind of longer lasting isn't it yeah i think so and and i like i I like i hesitate to call it to say it's it's more real but yet for me cooking something at home in the domestic space has more more of a reality than restaurant food like Mm. i think it's important that people understand that like the cooking like it's very psychological but when you eat in a restaurant it's like going to a theater like mm. everything, everything is set up and you go out and you have this experience. And, and, and it's important for people to know that, like that I don't go home and recreate that, that like I yeah. might just come home and have a bowl of cereal or yeah. I might have come home and, and make some pasta for myself and my kids or like do a chicken and some roast potatoes or something. There isn't some sort of elaborate kind of misunseen getting set up and they, and this is what happens. And- <laughs> yeah. And they go, God, you must eat so well at home. And, and I was like, well, no, cause I probably don't eat a lot of the foods that I cook it work a lot. Um, I don't eat like say like Aeneer does a lot of shellfish and mm. seafood and I probably don't because of two kids that aren't the biggest seafood eaters like of course they like bits and pieces of fish but I wouldn't be cooking lobsters at home because mm. I know I, that I've done it before and they go I'm not eating that and you and like and then you eat it yourself and you go well that wasn't great you realize that your your experience of having that food is uh is much more about just eating the lobster going i know this is good because if you're in front of two kids to go that actually deflate the whole thing and say do you know what? like what was so so what like mm. it's a lobster you know mm. and then you realize yeah like maybe there's a certain pretense or a construct behind so much of these things and it's it's much nicer for me to agree with okay what are we all eating and then cook it together and if that's just going to be pasta and cheese when well, it's going to be pasta and cheese mm. and if it's going to be a bit of broccoli because broccoli and raw mushrooms are the only things they'll eat don't ask me why they eat raw mushrooms all the time they peel them and eat the white mushrooms really? and they won't eat cooked mushrooms it's a textural thing isn't it mushrooms are slimy and raw yeah. mushrooms have that kind of crispness almost it's a constant vegetable war i think every parent has this constant trying to trying to get your kids to eat more vegetables and of course you have the 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 anomalies where someone's child just loves eating vegetables and you always hear the mother or father going oh my child eats like 15 different vegetables and you're going I, well oh. I had one of those and I had to just not say anything whenever <laughs> whenever yeah, yeah. I was out at, you know kind of toddler group or or you know later on in fact it, it, there was a point at which I would take him to other people's houses to eat with their children because he would have like a positive effect because they'd see him just chowing down through all yeah, the veg yeah. and they'd be like oh that's normal and I do think there's a kind of role modeling aspect yeah. in that it's like if people see if your kids see you enjoying food whatever it is they are gonna think that that's then that's the food that you eat that's the normal food in your house and so that's what they eat you know not pressurizing anyone to eat anything is definitely and it's it's definitely a good thing I think and I see the in uh, Heather the 12 year old I see when when her friends eat different stuff then she comes home and goes why don't we have any couscous and yeah. I go, because you don't eat it. And they go, oh, well, I, I had it today and I love it. 
Yes. And, and, and that's great because then it's like, because if I brought it in and said, eat this, they'd be like, what is it? And you go, excuse, excuse. Because now, and they, so I like the way that it's a kind of peer thing with our friends, mm. you know, and, and, and that's why I'm not worried about it per se. Like, I'm not worried in the sense that, like, because I didn't grow up like eating a variety of vegetables. Like, and, and yes. now, and now I love all vegetables and I, and I eat so many different, I'd eat anything if it was put in front of me and it was edible, you know, just even as an experiment. The worst thing is to make a deal out of food because then it becomes a power thing and it's taking the, the anxiety out of food. I, I suppose I, I started cooking after school. I mean, I, I did, I did, some, I, I KP'd a bit and worked in, in some kitchens and that. I, I, I suppose I saw it as a way to travel. You know, I said, what's your luck? I mean, they will always need chefs somewhere, you know? And if I can cook pizza or I can cook pasta or I can cook steaks or whatever, well, then surely if I go somewhere else, I can I can cook, too. And um, so I think that's what kept me attracted to food. And did you travel? I, I travel a little bit. You see, I always like I, I, I fancied myself as a kind of like as a poet as well, you know, and, uh, and and I still write poetry and I still love writing and all those things. But I, I think I moved to Paris like and I had a, a, a failure of I don't know how long I lasted, but I was like, I'm going to go to Paris and become a poet. But I remember coming back with my tail between my legs and having to ring my parents and get money to actually get <laughs> to actually get. And I got the bus home. The bus from Paris, like through Calais, Dover, then up through London. I think it took 48 hours to get home. And I remember I had a packet of biscuits. That's all I had. I might have had a pack. I don't know how much I had it, a pound or whatever currency. And I had enough money to buy a packet of biscuits. And I had this 48 hour trip with a packet of biscuits. And I kept thinking, do you know, if I look at people and they know I have no food, maybe they'll buy me some food. And, and like it, a little puppy. Yeah. And I was like, I'll just sit inside the boat now. It looks sad. And uh, and people might say, and no, no one bought me any food. So I, I always wanted to go to college as a mature student and I didn't get a good enough leaving. And so I kind of I kind of reapplied and we came back from Edinburgh just because I applied to Cork and I got Cork. And so. I went to college and I actually thought at that point that I wasn't going to cook anymore. You know, I thought, you know, I mean, I still loved food and I still I still kind of like put on little dinner parties in my house and cooked for people and um, uh, in, in my own way. And, and I remember collecting like Nigel Slater recipes in a folder. Yeah, I love that style. I, I think it was the, it was a combination of writing and food, you know, it was that mm. I just love that ele- that elemental and I still love uh like Nigel's books in the sense of like they they're a very authentic way of just going out to the shop and buying stuff and cooking and 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 I think he was kind of very seasonal before seasonal kind of became really fashionable you Mm. know and before it kind of absolutely just dominated and everyone was seasonal Mm. you know I I, am so I, I think that that certainly made made a made a, an impression on me and I think I I, I started I was, so I did college and I did two or three years and I, I started cooking in my third year of college because I, I needed money and, I, and then I and then I there was the Ballymaloo which are very famous in um in in Ireland they had a cafe in a gallery in Cork and I, and I worked there for the for the summer and um. and that's kind of like yeah what brought me back to a certain degree to cooking, you know, I, I think still at the time I was very confused in the sense that I didn't know if I wanted to cook or I wanted to 
become like a lecturer or a writer or I, I just didn't know. I started a PhD, which which I kind of never finished, but I did it for a, for um, a couple of years and um, we moved back to Galway. And at this time, um, I was uh, I went back to the to the restaurant that I'd worked in and I was the head chef and um, we 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 got the opportunity to to open a restaurant, which which became Cava in 2008 mm. and then it was we kind of went into it with very um with like very little experience in running a restaurant and just thinking oh look i can cook and um Dragine, my, my my wife was um saying well i've done the floor and you know we just open a restaurant and do it and and uh, and i suppose that moment did send me on a different trajectory I- and I remember, I remember struggling when I was doing. I did, I did. My PhD was in art history and in performance art, and and I remember struggling to combine and to explain to people. They said, like, why do you have a restaurant and why are you doing a PhD in art history? And 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 not knowing why. And and ultimately, I think that's what what happened and why I suppose I failed to finish one, which was the PhD, was I couldn't reconcile these two worlds. Mm. That I couldn't talk to anyone in the food world about doing a PhD in. in art history and I couldn't talk to anyone in the academic world about being a chef because mm. they were like oh chef weird you know it's like it was like the elephant in the room they were like you know when you're finished that thing you do in the restaurant you mean I was like you mean my life and they're like <laughs> yeah like there's a job in Nottingham that you might want to apply to and it was like like there was a real job you know like a, and and this this strange yeah, and I'm sure it's changed now in the sense that because now I think we have a better, we or we have a wider understanding of of the, the, the place of food. But I still feel that um, there is a gap, you know, and, and maybe that's why when I abandoned the PhD and said, I can't do this anymore. At that stage, we had three restaurants. And of course, like everyone would have said, well, of course, you're going to abandon your PhD. You're running three restaurants. Mm-hmm. I went back and did a master's in English. Oh, OK. Yeah, I wasn't con- I wasn't content. I was like, I'm going to get this PhD. And I don't know why. I think I, my father was a, was a lecturer and he never did his PhD. He did his master's in the 70s. And that was enough to get a job at a time. And he, he never did his PhD. And I think I have a hang up that he never got a PhD. So I want to get one. Yes. And um. And I'm still in my fourth year of another PhD uh, in drama, but it's in food and drama. Like I wrote, I wrote a play about food wow. and, and it's a practice based PhD. So I'm, I put on a play twice about Irish food and it's, wow. the, it's kind of weird play and it has lots of food memories and lots of food experiences. And I actually did a survey with a couple of hundred people about what was their first memory of food and mm. uh, what did they associate with Irishness. And then I cut it up to cut it all up and put it together like this kind of stream of consciousness. So people go to the play or went to the play thinking, oh my God, this is going to be great. It's going to be like a drawing room drama. I'm going to sit down and it's going to be cooking. And it is like kind of a crazy post-traumatic experience of voices of food. There isn't any actors. (laughs) So like there there, there are, there are actors, sorry, but there are no characters. It's just all of the different voices. Voices, yeah. yeah, and and the, it's uh, trying to explain this to people who went and went. I thought it'd be like the tasting menu in an ear, and I go no, because some parts are quite dark because it's about food and it's about food uh, poverty and it's about like it's about the the great things about food, but it's also about the bad things about food, about being a a, um, a housewife in the nineteen eighties and just being buried alive by the just having to cook food 
um, all the time and not being able to get out of that space. And, uh, and so like it's, it was informed by my own memories and by all of the, dif- the different survey I did. But the, the, I, still, I still think that that's an important part of what I'm trying to do. I don't know what I'm trying to do in the sense of why I cook and all those things. But for some reason, I feel the, 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 the influence of the arts on food needs to be felt more. And I will tell you a funny story that like that, that you will that is funny and also sad and shocking. But there was an academic in, in at one of the conferences and uh, he knew I cooked. He was an older gentleman. He was like of a previous generation. Um, and uh, like he was probably like this was when I was in my early 20, 25 and he was probably 55 or 60. But he actually said to me. Like, oh, you you have a restaurant and, and you work. And I was like, I do. He goes, like, how, how do you find um, engaging with the working classes? And yeah. I was like, I was like, sorry. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, because he goes, because I goes, I do some charity work once a month. And I find it very uplifting to kind of work, to get get amongst the working classes occasionally. <laughs> and I was like, oh and I remember the, the, my friend who was an academic as well was looking in disgust going, what is this guy saying at yeah. all? And and I remember, and then this guy left, and and uh, James said to me, he was like that guy. Like I didn't think people like that in the world existed. Like no, that. how to put so, so much distance between yourself and other people? Isn't that incredible? And it's kind of like I'm up here in the ivory tower. Yeah, I'm looking down, and it's food is a wonderful thing to have, and you you can you can eat it, and you can kind of, but it got it must be awful to be among it and to be mm. having to make your living. And and it stayed and and it stayed with me in the sense that I, I and that's why I feel I always try and either always bring myself down or take myself down in a good way when people say, "Oh, Michelin star chef X Y and Z," like I just say, "Look, I'm I'm just a cook. I just cook, and I just and and the, these things that have happened, like just happened. I mean, mm-hmm. they may have they may not have happened, mm-hmm. but 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 a, a lot of other things happened." to to create three restaurants i did not just get up and do it like there's so many people involved mm. you know? and i feel that people confuse that the person that i am and the the restaurants i, I don't walk around the house thinking i'm a michelin star chef i wonder what that feels like it's like a performance you go into the restaurant you put on your jacket and then you perform and then you leave, you know, it's mm. like you're it's almost like you're an actor, you mm. know, and you uh, and when you when you're off stage, you're just sitting around having some food. And it's not like you're this. Uh, and my friends will say I overanalyze food too much. And when I'm sitting down and they're always afraid to go, do you want to go to this place now? Because I know it's not very good. And, and I always <laughs> I, I, I always think I'm not going to. They go, God, you're you're, you're always giving out about this and that. And I go, I don't mean to give out. But do you know what? It's not that I give out because because things are bad, like in the sense that because I think they should be better. But for me, most of the time when I go out, I usually give out about the elemental things. I usually give out about the seasoning or the stuff that I feel that more love could have gone into, mm. like the veg on the side or something. Or mm. it's I don't give out about like, oh, my God, these like they're not they're not caught in a, in, in, the, in a particular way. You know, it's just that I, I when I give out, I feel that not enough love went into the food. Like, but we always joke in the restaurant, like when you give someone a recipe and, and, and they make it and they go, it wasn't as good as yours. And you go, you forgot to put the love in. And I, I still feel that that if, no matter what you take, if you take a, 
a squash or you take you take some flour and you you turn it into something. I think that if it's made with love, it doesn't really matter mm. the, about the the seasoning per se. You know, I mean, if 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 um, my mother in law, whose brown bread I love, and it's and it is a bit, it's probably a bit dry and it's a bit whatever. She makes it. She's been making it for uh, so many years. And but I at still at the same time, at the same time, I still really like it. You know, and mm. it's not it's not something I would critique if you were to put it in front of me and go, okay, what are the problems with this? And like maybe there could be more hydration or whatever. Like mm. I still feel that yeah, this is really nice because it's made by 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 someone who actually wants to make bread to feed people as opposed to who wants to make bread just to demonstrate that they can make a sourdough loaf and go, look, I made a sourdough. Now I'm mm. going to go on to do something else. Mm. You know? so. And also that sense of, of the love doesn't just have to be love for the people that you're cooking for. It's love for the actual, like you're saying about the squash, love for the squash. Like you have to fall in love with whatever you're cooking at that time and be thinking about, well, you know, what is going to make the most of this squash and not you know what foam and sprinkle and and t- technique but but how can I make the squash the most of itself I mean that's I guess for me that's like that would be my approach to life that's what you do for your kids and what you do for your partner and you know it's like how can I enable this to be the best of itself I think I appreciate cooking for other people more than I appreciate cooking for myself mm. You know, mm. like sometimes if I'm at home by myself, I like I will I, I will either do something very simple or I won't cook at all. I just have a sandwich. But if, if I have people in front of me, I want to cook for them. Yeah, because I think it's I think it's a gift. And yeah. I, I think in the sense that not that a gift that one has, but I think that the act of giving of giving someone food that is cooked, I think is um, is for me really important because mm. because it brings happiness and joy and it brings people together. And that I think that when we went to Spain in our in our early 20s, I loved that fact of people eating together and mm. later at night and sharing food. And I think I, that was like for me formative in the sense of going, wow, because we didn't have that in, in, in Ireland. And I'm sure it was probably similar in, 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 in England to a certain degree in, with, with pub culture that people people went for pints, you know, mm. and then food was like a an ancillary thing you ate after or or there was like loads of phrases like eating is cheating and all this kind of stupid stuff that were liquid lunch yeah and uh, and i remember thinking like why like why why people why don't people eat and drink at the same time and and now we're so much more used to it because yeah we're so much more cosmopolitan and all that crack but like uh, um, at the time i remember god i mean even down to the south of france remember in montpellier i remember seeing all these sandwiches on the street and, and I was thinking why don't they sell these in Ireland why is it just always like chips and burgers mm. and it was just like you could have like just like it was they were just like rolls with ham in them and then it was like little tarts and like probably a little quiche or something but I remember I was just so attracted going god that's amazing mm. it's like why I'd love to be able to come out of a pub in Ireland and go god you know what I'd love a I'd love a quiche like in train stations in Italy we always think you know they have the most beautiful sandwiches and but you can get it wherever you want or like apparently french service stations yes aren't they famous for you can go and like get like a corn-fed chicken yeah service stations is a really good example it's just that you you pack as much processed food in as you can um if you're if, if, if i'm driving around the country or whatever for work 
like, yeah, they, 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 it's very hard to eat fresh. Even when they open up a place that's supposed to be fresh, it's another chain of whatever. Exactly. And it's got, it's got the same chicken and pre-chopped veg and whatever yeah. than the other place. And yeah. it's, and I was thinking, God, what are we, what are we doing wrong? That like, if, if you cannot eat well it, it, during the day and say, if you cannot eat well for breakfast in terms of if you're going to work and say, they would say a train station or a service station, you can't go in and say, have a really good coffee. Mm. And, and um, I don't mean like a really good taste of coffee, but actually have a kind of like, this is where the coffee's from. And I know and people say, God, you just, you, you, you demand too much. And I go, but like it's, and people always go, you can't get Michelin star food in a service station. But I would say, I'm not asking for that. No. I'm just asking for, would it be possible in the way that we have beautiful little bakeries and pastry shops and sandwich bars, like, why can't we have a little bit more love in those pla- in, in Why can't we have some of those places in the service stations mm. as opposed to walk into a service station and you've got the same five brands as you mm. have if I walked into a service station in the middle of the UK and yeah. it, you'd have the same five brands. And unfortunately, when say when we were traveling in Spain, it, it beca- you can see the, the effect of that happening, whereas they're becoming more and more generic. Whereas mm. in the past, you would have gone and you would have gone, pulled into a weird service station and they might have had a few tapas or whatever mm. and 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 it it's it's yeah it, it's slightly depressing you know and even mm. even from i drove down from um from boston from toronto to new york um pre pre-covid um and yeah it was just every single station was exactly the same because i was said oh god i'd love to drive from toronto down to new york rather than fly it and, and see the different countrysides and that. But ironically, it was kind of like there was a kind of food was just flat. It was just like mm. the same. Mm. And, no and- sense of where you are in place. We I wanted to say we had a an amazing experience in an airport terminal in La Marche in, in Italy. We were coming back and they built a new terminal. But in the old terminal, they still had like the canteen, which is where all the airport staff went. And uh, our friends say, oh, go in, go in this. And you had to go through this. It was like dystopic, like being in yeah. a kind of dystopic film. All the terminal was empty and it was all like rubble everywhere. And we went up these steps and into this canteen. And there was just this, it was, it, it was all kind of, you know, pastas and different vegetables. And you just kind of helped yourself. And then there was a fridge and the fridge was full of um, sorbet and half uh, like uh, you know like a half a lemon with lemon sorbet in it and a half an orange and and it was just and it was all real food and there were yeah. just all these airport staff sitting around and eating a proper meal in the middle of the day and I could not believe it because it was such a it was such a little bit of of Italy and it wasn't that kind of we turn up to the airport and everything is franchises and yeah and completely ironed of any character or like it's had the hand of people on it it's all kind of machine made I think at the end of the day it's just have stuff that is that is less processed because when you walk into a a supermarket it's kind of like a a, it's almost like a a museum of processed food you know every single thing is is wrapped and And I think to try and get, and that's why I think people like going to market. And it does go back to food memories and a certain nostalgia to go to the market and go, God, this is the way we bought stuff when we were kids. Mm. It's like all mm. the apples were just there in front of you. Like they weren't wrapped in fours mm. or in a plastic bag. And, 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 and to a certain degree, 
this that's bureaucracy and that's it's bureaucracy gone wrong where of course people want to know where their stuff comes from and uh, mm. when it was packaged but at the same time i think wrapping everything and labeling everything is not the answer when you have to set up a vegetable stand you know and mm. it's not like everything arrives in shiny boxes and you just put it into a shiny space and then people come along and they buy it and everything like it there is dirt and there's like you know like because vegetables come from the ground or if there's fish there's like boxes of ice and all these things and so to, just to see the processes of that and I think that's that's important because I think that we're, we're probably moving more and more away from being able to see how things work even though we have greater we have greater possibilities because we have YouTube and Netflix and we can watch programs about how things happen and, and all this. But at the same time, like our own personal experience of people actually going to a farm or going to an abattoir, which you probably can't even do because you wouldn't be allowed, mm. you know? So the, there are spaces that, 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 that make life possible because we eat and uh, we have to eat. And yet we're not allowed to go into them because mm. They, 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 people would be shocked or people would be offended or people would be scared. Mm-hmm. And like that really demonstrates to me, God, there's a massive gap in our, it, one of the things like in my play is, is, uh, is I'm obsessed with lobsters, okay, in my play, okay? And, and I didn't start off with an obsession because I just said like, oh yeah, cool, I'm gonna bring a lobster into the theater. I'm gonna put it on the table. And I didn't realize the reaction it was gonna cause. People don't really know what lobsters do. And someone was like, can it jump at you? And I was like, <laughs> no. And it's like, will it jump at you like one of the aliens and grab onto you? And I was like, no. It's like, but this, this wasn't this wasn't a joke. And, and then the stage manager was like, what's it gonna do? And I was like, I don't know, it's on the table. And yeah. he's going, we need, to, we need to know what it's going to do during the performance. It goes back to our jumping off the diving board. There's an element of control. Mm. It's like, what is that going to do? And I was like, I'm going to kill the lobster during the play. He's like, you're not killing the lobster during the play. Nothing is dying in this theater. I realized that people, A, they don't know what animals do. And B, Mm. maybe they don't want to know. They don't want to see what happens to food. People don't want to know that their food has feelings and it comes from a place. And and, and I know that's very animal-centric. But at the same time, I always say to people, you know, when you pull a leak out of the ground, it has to die. And, mm. and, and it, it, uh, vegetables have to die too and flowers die and whatever we eat has to die because we're organic mm. and w- that's the process we're in but it's kind of almost that like we don't want to know about that about mm. that thing that happens with food and we want to just keep eating it we want it to have mm. a little brand and we want it to have a little shiny smiley face like the ham with the smiley face and <laughs> even though it's made from little bits of the pig it has yes. a smiley face and it's looking at you go oh wow it's ham during one of the other performances, two of the actors would not touch the lobster. And they actually, it was the first time I realized like actors, not that actors are people. I know that all actors are people. <laughs> this is funny, considering yeah. you're talking about the feelings of animals. You're like, yeah. are actors people? <laughs> uh, yeah, because I always thought like actors just do what, what's in the script. Do you know what I mean? Like and, automatons. Yeah, kind of like, well, if this is the script the writer gives them and then they just do it. But, and this, it's it's a really interesting point because, and, and it does come out of like Me Too culture and consent culture. And now like you, what you have is, you have like actors who go, do you know what? I'm not performing that. 
and huh. you have to you have to change the script. And you know what? And it's not a bad thing. But I, for me, it was it was it was really interesting because it, it's it's not the way that you think uh, you think that how stuff is done. You think, oh, mm-hmm. someone writes a play, someone writes a movie script, actors come along and do it. And like, that's not the case because they go, I have rights. And also the actor has to connect with what they're doing in order to give it authenticity. Yeah. And he was like, so the actor was like, I am not touching that lobster. I don't care if it's in the play. And I was just, this wasn't even like to kill it or anything. This was just to lift it up during the performance. And I'm like, I'm not touching it. I don't care. It's alive. Get a fake one. And I was like, I don't want a fake rubber one. (laughs) The whole point is that it's supposed to be real. And they're like, why can't you just, they kept saying to me, why can't you just use rubber food? I was like, I was like, the whole point is that people are because people eat during the play and people at the beginning eat the the foods that are mentioned. And some of them are stupid, like crisp sandwiches and some of them are oysters and brown Mm. bread and apple tarts. And and of course, lobster. Nobody wants eating the lobster during the play, but nobody wants to see it. (laughs) Everyone eats it and goes, oh, I love lobster. I'm an omnivore, but I don't yeah. eat massive amounts of meat and fish. Yeah, yeah. I, I eat, you know, try not to overdo it. And I watched uh, the Netflix show, My Octopus Teacher. Oh, that, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, go oh, on. Oh, God. Well, it, well, it's a love story. It's a love story, really, between a guy and an octopus, which might sound weird. But actually, uh, when you watch it, you'll <laughs> you'll see that it's beautiful. It's a, a, an absolutely beautiful thing. And I found it so moving and so upsetting at the end. I mean, I was I was absolutely ruined by it that I then thought, oh, well, I can't eat octopus now. And then when I sat back and thought about that, I thought, well, that's ridiculous because I also love lambs and I love my yeah. cat and I love, I mean, I don't have the same feeling towards fish, but maybe if I saw a, a film that kind of made the fish uh, that where I saw that how the fish thought and felt about things. I mean, the thing about seeing this in my octopus teacher is you really see how intelligent the octopus is, and you see it kind of fighting off threats from sharks, and you see how it's clever and it's it's doing things to protect itself. And and then it's, I mean, and this is the thing I almost can't say it without crying. But then at the end, uh, when they reproduce, uh, the 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 female octopus gives up her. But the thing is that to give new life, what I was doing is uh, anthropomorphizing. God, that's a difficult word. I know. I always find it hard to say that word. Yeah, anthropomorphizing the the, the animal. And so it isn't that I never want to eat octopus, but I also want to acknowledge that that it's okay to have feelings about it, about killing other things. It, that it is a terrible, cruel thing to do, but it's also a necessary thing in order to survive. And if you can't accept that, then you have to be vegan. Like I'm an omnivore, but yeah, I try and check myself by saying, do I need to eat meat every single day? Do I need to eat fish all the time? And and that's why I think that well, the Sea Spiracy mm. show. And yeah, like I, I guess, I get that. They're trying to shock you into not eating fish and there's a political agenda. And there's, I, I think for me, it's not that we shouldn't, but that we should take greater care. And I think that if that was the end message of the film, I think much more people would be much more responsive. I think that the, fa- the fact that it ends is saying fish is bad, don't eat it. But it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't give you that small boat on the Iron Islands or that small boat in Cornwall or that small boat where this is someone's livelihood 
Mm. And it is someone has been doing this for generations. And it is, a, it's a way to live, mm. to actually, you need to eat. Th- that element needs to be seen alongside the, yes, the, the gargantuan ships. But I think that if it brings about a greater appreciation of food and you have more respect for it, mm. then I think it's a good thing. I've just noticed the time. Oh, sorry, I wasn't even thinking about the time. I'm sorry. No, I I'm, no, no, I mean, I could literally talk to you all day. <laughs> I know. But I, I mean, know we a mar- have... A marathon podcast. And that was an absolutely fantastic conversation. And I I've kind of feel like I'm slightly left with lots of questions that I, <laughs> that I, I want to ask you. That'll be, uh, that'll be part two. Part uh, two, exactly. And, I, and there's even things I thought, of, God, I didn't say that, and I didn't say that, and I didn't say that. So, yeah, we, we can do it again someday. Do you know a farmer? I think that's the, the best thing to, to end on. Find a farmer that you can know, even if you never buy anything from him. At least you'll know a farmer and that's someone who actually lives producing food. And it's, mm. a, it's a really hard thing to do. Cut out the middlemen. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think JP strikes the perfect balance between hilarity and meaning, uh, particularly with his his uh, play, his piece. <laughs> Just the idea of this lobster and everyone struggling with the idea of it being alive and, and uh, unpredictable, that delights me. Uh, and you can find out about uh, JP's restaurants and Food on the Edge, his cookery school, his Instagram. Uh, He also uh, has a a whole range of different podcasts that he's done. So all of that information will be in the show notes, which you can find through Apple Podcasts or on my uh, website, naomidevlin.co.uk. If you just go to the bread and milk tab, then you'll find it all there. And if you could possibly rate and review leave just a rating is fantastic but a review really helps for people to see and understand what the podcast is and uh and why you enjoy it and uh because there are so many podcasts it encourages people to take a punt so thank you to all of you who already have left some absolutely heartbreakingly touching uh, reviews and for everyone else you can leave them at Apple Podcasts that is the best place to leave it most visible but also you can access uh, the podcast through um, Spotify Google Podcasts and Amazon Music and you can leave reviews for the whole show there so if you'd like to do that I really really appreciate it and I have a few more podcasts recorded which I'll edit and get out over the next few weeks and then I'm going to take a break for the summer Thank you.